Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books in Economics, a podcast channel of the New Books Network. I'm Tim Jones, and I'm joined today by Hans Werner Zinn, author of The Economics of Target Balances from Lehman to Corona, published in October by Polgrave Macmillan. Target, or Target 2, to use its proper name, which we will now dispense with, is a payment system that allows for quick and final settlement of cross-border transfers within the euro area. This can be for payment for a good or service, buying a security, repayment of a loan, depositing funds at a bank, and so on. Until the collapse of Lehman Brothers in 2008, Target was, as Professor Zinn says in his book, an obscure aspect of the euro system. Once the post-Lehman crisis proved the euro to be fragile, however, that changed, and especially in parts of the German economics profession, as the Deutsche Bundesbank's Target claims exploded. In 1999, the euro's first year, these claims on other national central banks or NCBs in the euro system average 14 billion euros. Today, in the wake of Lehman and the coronavirus pandemic, they stand at just over a trillion euros. As the author admits, some economists think this is nothing to worry about and simply reflects a functioning monetary union. These balances do not reflect a credit relationship and no loans can be called due, they say. Professor Zinn begs to differ and explains exactly why in this short book that was finished just as the pandemic struck Europe. He writes that this is a, quote, systematic assessment of the target phenomenon, which may counter distorted narratives influenced by vested political interests, unquote. Hans Wenerzin is Emeritus Professor of Economics and Public Finance at the University of Munich, was president of the IFO Institute for Economic Research from 1999 until 2016, and is a leading public intellectual in Germany. Professor Zinn, welcome to the podcast. Yeah, good morning. Good morning. Um, before we dive into the central argument of your book, I think we're going to need some background and explanations. Could you begin, as you do in the book, by explaining what target is, what the target balances are, and how these have become a policy issue since the onset of the financial crisis in, in uh, 2007-2008? Yeah, uh, briefly, target balances are imbalances in international net payment orders between countries. Um, these payment orders are being made for buying goods and assets, for redeeming debt, everything for which there could be a payment, what you would like to buy or what you would like to transfer in terms of money to someone else. Um these balances um, uh, imply that if there is a deficit country which makes more payment orders into another to another country uh, than uh, come from from other countries in the eurozone that uh, this country loses liquidity and uh, would come into difficulty unless uh, new liquidity is being created in this country and this is the case through the actions of the national central bank. So by and large, 
um, these net payment orders to other countries require extra money creation through the local printing press. And this is something which many people don't understand. Uh, we have a rather decentralized euro system where each central bank, um, national central bank, is still in its place. It is owned by the respective nation state. Um, it is um, able to carry out policies according to rules which are defined in Frankfurt by the ECB, but these rules are a little bit flexible and do allow an asymmetric money creation. So it is in principle possible that a local central bank um, prints electronically, typically, but also physically, prints more money and uh, lends it to the banking sector, which lends it to the private economy or to the domestic state, uh, which then is used to make payment orders to other countries. So uh, a flow of goods and assets um, is coming in into this country, uh, being paid with the self-created money. Now, what are the mechanisms? The mechanisms are um, uh, rather uh, loose definition of uh, collateral, which banks have to give to their respective central bank if they want to have a refinancing credit with newly created money. Um, it is uh, the phenomenon of uh, ELA credit, emergency liquidity assistance. So if a national central bank says we are in, in trouble, our economy has a liquidity squeeze, they can uh, print extra money and lend it out to the banking sector, which then lends it out to the private economy and the respective state, according to their own rules. Uh, the ECB Council does not even have to be asked for that, but it can say no. But in order to say no, it needs two-thirds majority. And as it happened in the crucial years of the euro crisis, um, the countries in trouble which needed um, uh, potentially uh, this ELA credit had one vote more than one-third, so the rest could not ever block them. And then there is the phenomenon of own business, um, ruled under the so-called ANFA agreement. That is, a national central bank can do its own business to some extent. It can print money in order to um, buy assets, and the returns uh, would then uh, be going to the national state. Um, it can create a certain wealth portfolio. Well, some return has to be given to a common interest pool equal to the main refinancing rate, but any extra which they earn is theirs. So there is scope for asymmetric money creation. And this asymmetric money creation means that net payment orders can be made to other countries. Net payment orders can, of course, also be made through symmetrical money creation. If there is a lot of um, um, asset purchases in proportion to country size, as we had it under uh, the uh, quantitative easing program starting in 2015, 15, uh, it is also possible, of course, to use the extra liquidity, which is not urgently necessary for domestic circulation, in order to make payment orders to other countries. So basically, uh, 
these payment orders, these net payment orders to other countries measured by the target balances um, lead to a reverse flow of goods and real assets. And um, here we do have uh, something which is close to a credit, which is actually a credit, because uh, if another central bank, say, um, say the Bundesbank, carries out a payment order on behalf of the Greek central bank, it it gives this Greek central bank um, indirectly via 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 the euro system a credit. Uh, why is it a credit? Uh, because um, uh, nothing is being returned. A payment order usually is a credit relationship between banks. If one bank makes a payment order to another one, um, uh, this other one has to be kind enough so as to issue money for the purposes defined. And uh, for that, it receives a credit claim or an asset. Perhaps it has already um, an account with, uh, uh, with a common central bank then the uh, values on this account go from one uh, bank to another one. But this is not the case in the Eurozone because there are no such accounts. Uh, these accounts, or there are accounts, but they can become negative. And if they become negative, uh, this, is a, this is really a payment order. Yes. Yeah, you, you say at the uh, early on... Credit, of course. Yeah, you say early on um, in the book that the ECB could have chosen one of four models at its design phase, um, and it chose the one in which the NCB makes a payment order to another jurisdiction but continues to own the asset uh, it acquired by issuing central bank money. Can you can you set out here why you think that model was chosen over the other over the other three? Yeah, uh, so one could have established a purely private system of payment orders, for example, according to the Maastricht Treaty, where banks uh, carry uh, payment orders among one another across border, and then the banks are mutually uh, giving credit. Um, that was not chosen. One could have chosen a European system, truly European system in the sense that um, uh, everyone has an account with the ECB, uh, every local central bank. It, uh, when it uh, generates money, it buys an asset in the private economy, and this asset becomes uh, goes to the ownership of the, of the ECB. And the ECB, in turn, would be owned by the EU. This would be a model. Then there wouldn't be a credit relationship, but that wasn't chosen. Uh, one wanted the national central banks to be very independent and uh, to belong, continue to belong to the ownership of the national uh, central state. And uh, then um, the next model would have been um, to uh, make payment orders from one central bank to another one. And on behalf of doing that, uh, handing over the monetary assets, which were bought by the local central bank, uh, in the first place, to the other central bank. Then uh, the, the redemption of this implicit credit coming from the uh, uh, payment order would be immediately made upon making the payment because the respective asset would be going elsewhere. And the fourth possibility is just making the payment order, having an open position without handing anything, any asset ownership 
to the European uh, central banking system. So there is a credit relationship. Uh, It's an overdraft credit. A local central bank, which has a negative target account, has drawn a credit from the euro system. And uh, a surplus um, central bank with a positive target balances have been forced to give credit to the euro system. The euro system is a clearing institution, so they do not have mutual credit relationships, but they do have this credit relationship with the European Central Bank. There is uh, no ambiguity here. Uh, A credit system was chosen. And if there is a credit, upon making payment orders, there is a credit risk. This credit risk could be that a country leaves the eurozone, for example, and doesn't respect its target liabilities. Think of Italy, the Liga, uh, the party which briefly was in power uh, some years ago, uh, really wanted to uh, to get out of the euro and uh, to wipe out its entire target debt. Uh, Paolo Savona and others, uh, Borghi, the financial spokesman, they explicitly advocated that. And uh, that would have been a loss for the euro system as such, because, um, um, as I said, real assets, real goods were being delivered to Italy. And uh, this built up uh, the debt of the Banca d'Italia with regard to the euro system. And if this debt is not respected, then, you know, there is a loss in real terms for the rest of the eurozone. Uh, not particularly with the Bundesbank or someone else. Uh, The rest of the uh, uh, central banks in the euro system would uh, share the losses according to their relative size as reflected by the paid-in capital key. And there are more losses. Uh, Some people say the only risk is if a country leaves and doesn't respect its target claims. Uh, But there are more possibilities. Another possibility is that uh, one financial system like that of uh, Italy, say, or Greece, is collapsing. The state is collapsing, the banking sector is collapsing. So uh, then um, uh, the uh, local central bank, which uh, has to deliver uh, net interest payments on assets it generated, um, or it no, it uh, bought at home um, to the euro system, to the pooling system, cannot do that. Uh, and it typically has generated more local interest revenue from asset purchases if it did this extra money creation, which led to the target uh, liabilities. So uh, it would not be able to service uh, its debt through the pooling system and uh, could be technically in a sort of default within the euro system. Some people say a national central bank cannot be in default because they can print the money and so on. This is nonsense. It does not apply to the internal relationship between uh, the European uh, central banks. It applies to the relationship between a central bank and the private economy, but that's a completely different issue. Yeah, is your argument there that essentially the um, the exposure of the national central bank, or sorry, the, the ultimate um, guarantor for the national central bank is the nation state, and if the nation state has defaulted within the eurozone, 
therefore that becomes a de facto no loss. no 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 the argument mm. is as uh, suppose the domestic um, uh, uh, state goes bankrupt it has issued um, debt certificates the debt certificates have been bought by banks um, the banks have uh, sold them to the national central bank um, then the national central bank has a claim on the local state and if the local state cannot service its debt then um, the national central bank cannot service its debt uh, either there is not a direct service in the narrow sense it's a, compl- a somewhat co- more complicated issue which requires some equations and which which the book does contain but by and large if um, uh, uh, a local central bank has a negative target liability. It has issued more than its fair share uh, of money, and it has generated more interest revenue from assets which uh, it accumulated. And this extra interest revenue would have to go uh, to the pool of the euro system and be distributed to other central banks, which themselves would give this interest income to their respective states, but they couldn't. So uh, there is even a target risk if the euro persists. No one leaves the euro system, but one state, uh, including its banking system, defaults because then uh, technically the local central bank is in default within the euro system. Mm. Uh, This is a possibility. Now, in the book, you identify three distinct chapters in the history of the target balances. The first from the summer of 2007 to 2012, the second from the summer of 2012 to 14, and the third before COVID anyway, from 2014 onwards. Could you talk us through this uh, this history? Yeah. As you said in your introduction, initially, the target balances were zero. Before Lehman, before the Lehman crisis, the target mechanism was in place. Uh, it was target one, if you wish, and later target two was introduced. So target one or target two don't differ in any re- relevant aspect here. But um, they were close to zero because the policies of the central banks uh, were such that there wouldn't be net payment orders. But all of a sudden, then there was the Lehman crisis and uh, the countries of Southern Europe, which had huge current account deficits built up in the bubble, which the euro created there in the first 10 years, um, were no longer able to finance these current account deficits with private capital inflows. So there were not no payment orders coming in from other countries um, giving them liquidity which they could use to buy goods elsewhere uh, so there be- was an imbalance and then they printed the money which they couldn't borrow anymore they did that through the ELA credit they did that through uh, a generous interpretation of the collateral requirements of the ECB they did that to uh, through the uh, um, own business uh, which later was regulated under the ANFA agreement um, initially a secret agreement, which later was published within the uh, euro system. So there was a period of asymmetric money creation. That lasted until, uh, I would say, 2012. That was the peak of the euro crisis. Um, Then there was a huge capital flight. There was not only a sudden stop of 
foreign capital coming in, paying for the current account deficits, but more the existing capital wanted to get home. That is, um, uh, foreign creditors asked uh, for a redemption of the cred credit when it was due rather than offering new replacement credit, rolling over the credit. Uh, so this capital flight uh, uh, induced a major euro crisis, and then came Mario Draghi with his whatever it takes. So he guaranteed basically uh, the government bonds of the respective states, arguing or saying to the markets, be, don't be afraid to buy Spanish government bonds, for example, because you are afraid that the Spanish state has a bankruptcy risk there won't be such a bankruptcy risk because before such a danger occurs, um, Spain will go uh, to the ESM, uh, subscribe a memorandum of understanding. And if that is the case, then we will uh, unlimited, in an unlimited way uh, buy uh, Spanish government bonds from the market. So investors, if you go into Spanish assets, don't be afraid that you will bear the loss. Before that happens, we will buy these assets out of your portfolio. And then all of a sudden, of course, um, uh, the market calmed and uh, capital returned uh, to Southern Europe and the uh, target balances declined because uh, capital returning, meaning that payment orders go from the north to the south and uh, um, the, uh, the balances normalized again. That lasted a while, uh, but then came a, a, a further phase, which is uh, the QE program starting in 2015, a huge asset purchase program, uh, the ECB agreed uh, that its member uh, national central banks should buy local government bonds in proportion to country size. So that is in pro pro proportion to, cap to the capital key. And that created an abundance of liquidity. So everywhere in the Eurozone did we have more liquidity than was necessary for local circulation. And this extra liquidity did not stay in uh, the countries of Southern Europe, which uh, still were not considered to be perfectly safe and were parked uh, somewhere in the north. So the money was used uh, to uh, buy um, assets in the north, uh, for example, in Germany, uh, shares uh, of companies, whole companies, uh, buy a real estate and what have you, and was used to redeem the private uh, debt of previous days, uh, which had become due in the meantime. So this extra money from the local printing press uh, was basically used to uh, improve one's um, um, asset position, private asset position with regard to other uh, countries. Uh, that was uh, a further wave in the target balances, and that uh, was increasing the target balances. Basically, what happened is that through this process, the um, um, uh, uh, huge stocks of, um, uh, of government bonds, which uh, the Southern European countries had issued before, long before, and which were circulating and held elsewhere in the world, 
were being repurchased back home. And uh, it was repurchased by the local central banks. And uh, uh, the money uh, which thereby came into circulation elsewhere in the world was not returning to that respective country, but was being invested typically in uh, countries like the Netherlands uh, or Germany. Germany was by far the largest uh, recipient of that money. And uh, what means that um, assets go into foreign ownership and uh, the money stays uh, in Germany. We have nowadays a huge uh, excess stock of real money balances, M0, in the Eurozone, which is a multifold of the stock of money balances, which once uh, was sufficient. Uh, we now have, uh, in the moment, with Corona, uh, probably so about uh, four or five times the amount of uh, uh, M0 in the Eurozone than in 2008, when the Lehman crisis broke out and the and the decisions made will imply a six-fold increase in the stock of money balances uh, relative to what they once were. Always I talk about M0, so genuine central bank money rather than the, uh, book money derived by banks in the secondary process, M, M, M1, M2, M3, and so on. This is another issue. Uh, so um, uh, basically, uh, it was possible to... Uh, um, monetize the government debt and um, bring this extra money uh, to the north where it is now located in exchange for uh, real assets. That is uh, the process uh, induced by QE and Corona added uh, uh, quite a bit of capital flight in March when we uh, had the first genuine uh, information that the corona crisis would hit Europe, uh, uh, the stock market collapsed, as you know, and uh, that was the month of the largest increase in target balances ever since the inception of the euro system. And uh, in particular, the Bundesbank's claims were shooting up because flight money was coming uh, to Germany. And uh, that is the reason why uh, recently... Uh, we had figures of more than 1,100 billion euros of target claims of the Bundesbank. Actually, these claims are fully booked in the balance sheets of the Bundesbank. These are claims on the euro system. They are booked in the uh, net foreign asset position by Eurostat. So these are not imaginary figures. These are all hard data from Eurostat statistics. Nowadays, 50% of the entire net foreign asset position of the Federal Republic of Germany, that is the net claims on foreigners resulting from previous current account surpluses, 50% is target claims of the Bundesbank. That's a bit much. <laughs> uh, well, you, you make this point that, in your view, this was a main motivator behind the introduction of um, tiering. In September last year, that to of, help of address this, the, the introduction oh, the of tiering. tiering. The tiering yeah. yeah, yeah. Could could you talk us through your argument there, please? Oh yeah, that's another phase. Um, um, the tiering resulted from 
uh, or what does it mean? It means a bracket for um, penalty interest. So we are now living in a world of negative interest. Um, while the main refinancing rate is zero, uh, the deposit facility rate is minus 0.5 in the eurozone. So if um, a bank has an account uh, with its central bank, it has to pay interest on this account equal to minus 0.5. Now, tiering means that there was an interest-free bracket introduced, sixfold the minimum reserve, a huge amount, and um, that meant because the extra liquidity had already flown to the north, that in the south there was uh, unexploited scope for these interest-free uh, brackets, while the banks in the north had already um, excess liquidity beyond these interest-free uh, brackets. So there was an arbitrage possibility where this excess liquidity was being uh, 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 lent to banks in the south at a rate of interest somewhere between zero and minus 0.5. And uh, that would um, reduce the interest burden of the banks in the north, and it would not lead to extra interest burden of the banks in the south because they had unexploited bracket space. And so there was a mutual gain for both, meaning that the target balances immediately declined. This was, was a short period because uh, thereafter came the, Euro, uh, the corona crisis, which, which overshadowed and overlaid this whole process and led to capital movements back, uh, back to the north. But it tells us that the target balances are uh, reacting strongly to interest differentials at the margin. For the first time in its history, has the ECB now uh, differentiated the effective marginal interest rates on, uh, uh, on deposits um, in the eurozone, um, through, through tiering. It has, has not said so that it would dif differentiate the interest rates, but that's what it actually meant. And uh, this tells us that if we would revert to a policy of open interest differentiation in the eurozone, according to country risk, say, uh, then there wouldn't be target balances. The target balances arise only from the fact that the ECB argues there is no country risk, we are all in the eurozone, we are all equally safe, and uh, therefore the interest rates should at the margin everywhere be the same, and uh, the market sees that differently. So the market prefers uh, basically to draw local interest from the printing press at home of a particular country rather than borrowing abroad in the interbank market. And, 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 and this action against the market, this neglect and denial of the fact that functioning markets do need interest differentials according to country risk has led to the target balances. That's the ultimate interpretation, implying that if you want to get rid of the target balances, you just have to tell the ECB to differentiate the interest rates across the countries. Uh, you could do that by arguing that uh, in addition to uh, looking for at uh, price stability in the eurozone, the ECB would have the task to equilibrate the balance of balances of payments in the eurozone because a balance of payment imbalance is a target number which uh, 
uh, about which we are speaking here. Yes, I, and you you make this point um, at the end of the book. You you set out uh, your preferred reforms, as you say, restoring differentials is is, is critical to reducing the balances. But you say that this would ideally require moratoria on government debt, target debt, cash balance debt, bank debt, uh, and even potentially uh, allowing for a temporary departure to devalue, as, as Wolfgang Schäuble suggested for Greece in 2015. Um, do you do you think this is a realistic, politically realistic proposal? Well, well, well this does not require it. I mean, we could uh, clearly um, move to... Uh, Another system, uh, politically, realistically? No, of course not. <laughs> I'm not a, an idiot. Uh, I know what is possible and what is not possible. This is a normative statement. It is a statement about uh, desired policies, not about politically possible policies. Politically possible policies are always the policies which are carried out actually. So uh, this is not the task of an economist to talk about uh, um, uh, 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 recommendations which take into account all constraints that policymakers face, uh, including their personal interrelationship, their uh, the, the strength of parties in particular countries, and so on. No, the economist must abstract from this kind of constraints and look at the basics and respect only uh, the basic constraints, and then comes out another policy recommendation, because in the end, we want to have a functioning euro system. We don't want to have a system like this one, uh, which uh, makes it possible for particular countries to uh, buy assets abroad with money they printed themselves. Uh, it, it is as simple as that. Uh, such a system is a system of loose budget constraints, which in the long run cannot really function and survive. Uh, we have had other... Uh, examples in history uh, for that. So um, tight budget constraints is essential for any market economy, any system, uh, because uh, real resources are scarce and this scarcity has to be reflected by a hard and not by uh, loose budget constraints. And Target is a system with extremely loose national budget constraints because you can use the national printing press uh, to fulfill your wishes. And, you know, this is one of the reasons why everyone, even though they would not uh, prosper in the Eurozone, uh, would like to stay in. Why does Greece want to stay in, in the Eurozone? Because they can print the money which they need if, if necessary. And they, however, harm, are harming their economy because in the pre-Lehman bubble, uh, Greece became way too expensive. They would have to devalue. They can't devalue. And uh, they do harm to their local population. They have a mass unemployment. All these implications uh, they accept because it's so nice to have a printing press for money which other countries accept as legal tender. You know, before the euro, if you print a drachma uh, in order to go shopping elsewhere in the world, these drachmas would immediately return. No one in the world was willing to hold stocks of drachmas. Uh, they were returned to Greece to buy something else in Greece. So um, that led to a devaluation and uh, uh, no net payment orders would occur. But now, much better, you can print the euro and other states in the eurozone except the Greek printed euro 
as a legal tender. And uh, what is nicer than a system like this one? But such a system has no long-run survival possibility. In the short run, yes, you can always calm the capital markets, but you uh, sustain um, uh, a wrong system of relative prices in the euro system where some countries are permanently overpriced, uh, have wages beyond what, uh, what productivity allows, uh, will therefore not become ever uh, an attractive place for investment. They would be like the Italian Mezzogiorno, which for half a century or longer has been in a similar situation. Wages above what local productivity allows, wages dicta dictated by the unions in the north, And the result is a transfer system where the North would have to uh, finance uh, uh, the South permanently, which sustains the living standard, but uh, is expensive for the North and makes it impossible forever for the South to prosper. The South would be permanently in a sort of Dutch disease. Uh, Dutch disease is a phenomenon uh, which describes the fact that uh, uh, The Netherlands in the 60s, when they um, found natural gas, sold this gas to the world, had revenue, increased their wages in the government sector, in the gas industry, and then in the rest, uh, increased product, increased not productivity, but living standard, while the productivity of the industry did not increase, so they decimated their industry. That's a Dutch disease. If you give resources to a particular country on a permanent level, You increase the living standard and destroy its competitiveness. This is one act. And if we want to build a Europe based on these principles, well, good luck. Uh, it will never be able to compete with the world and be competitive. Do you, I mean, I, I, we, I just I mentioned earlier the, the possibility of uh, what is politically possible as opposed to what is ideal for you. Do, do you think that there are there are potential interim solutions for example you you mentioned the idea of a new treaty that would remove the structural majority for data country uh, ncbs um and also the, some kind of constraint on the building up of current account uh, deficits not I mean, current account deficits on balance of payment deficits yes so yes sorry so the There is this uh, procedure, the European Commission has this procedure on macroeconomic imbalances. Potentially, there could be something that could address this this structural majority on, on, on the governing council. Are these not interim solutions that could perhaps be uh, sufficient? Yeah, it would be a major political move. But, you know, um, Macron has always said he wants a new treaty. And uh, Mrs. Merkel has agreed that there should be a new treaty. Some time ago, they agreed on that when Macron was uh, giving his uh, Zabon speech uh, and he initiated a debate. Uh, not very much has happened here, I, I agree. But in principle, uh, the idea of a new treaty is in the air. And I think it would be useful to have a new treaty. Then lots of things could be uh, handled here. Um, which are a problem now, common foreign policy, foreign refugee policy, uh, and maybe a new system for of rules for the European Central Bank. Uh, 
the current system really does not uh, function well. It's just good in order to uh, make the Eurozone uh, financial crisis proof. Yeah, uh, The actions of the ECB always give safety to investors. They can always um, escape if necessary. So they come in the first place. Yes, financial stability, yes. But distortions in the real economy, capital, real capital is not going to uh, uh, places in Europe where it earns the highest rate of return, but places which, uh, according to the will of the ECB Council, through its policy of neglecting country risks, uh, uh, should go. So there is a a, a directivism uh, or central planning element here in uh, distorting the European capital flows, actually something which is being increased now through the uh, um, uh, environmental taxonomy of the of the EU. In, in the future, assets will be uh, painted green or not so green, and who has the greenest assets gets the lowest rate of interest. You know, that is an, an interference with the functioning of a capitalist market economy, which is basically alien to this system and leads to uh, distortions. We economists speak of Harburger type of uh, distortions, which um, reduce the overall productivity and living standard in Europe. Yeah. Uh, Well, my final question, uh, given this podcast about books, uh, is there a book, perhaps one you've read recently on Europe or or, or on economic policy that you would recommend to, to podcast listeners? (laughs) Uh, the the last book I just uh, finished is uh, an old book uh, by Stefan Zweig was written I think in the 30s about a person whom you as uh, Brits um, know very well Maria Stewart it is a fascinating book so many people have written about Maria Stewart but this book, I hope it is, was translated to English, I'm not sure, uh, gives a f- wonderful assessment of the whole story <laughs> and murder and crime and love. And uh, I, I couldn't recommend anything more interesting than this book. Okay, well, thank you. <laughs> we'll look out for that. Um, today, Hans Werner Zinn and I have been discussing his The Economics of Target Balances from Lehman to Corona, published by Palgrave Macmillan. Professor Zinn, thank you again for joining the podcast. You're welcome. Goodbye.